In my place condemned he stood, the pattern of biblical atonement. The title that I've given this morning's teaching time is the most important paragraph ever written. And I'll tell you where I stole that title in just a minute. The text is Romans chapter 3. Verses 21 to 26. I hope you have a Bible in some form or another. Romans chapter 3, 21 to 26. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. It's interesting. He doesn't start saying the love of God, the righteousness of God has been manifested. That's in Jesus apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. So we know that the whole Bible is written around this theme. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all of sin fall short of the glory of God. That's the debt we were talking about. We fall short of the glory of God. You were created to glorify God and are justified by his grace. He doesn't just say forgiven. Notice some of the terms used here. Justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption. So now there's a a purchasing, redeem, redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation. I want to talk about that word in a minute. By his blood, so immediately we're taken back to Exodus, the shed blood on the doorposts, Leviticus, the two goats. We took a week on that. One is killed, the blood spread upon the altar. Redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God, 25, put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show... Why why did Jesus come? Well, this was to show God's righteousness. Because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show, again, why did Jesus come? It was to show, there's the purpose, his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier. Note the order of those two words. The first has to do with God's end, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in in Jesus. The title of this message comes from Leon Morris's wonderful commentary on Romans, where he specifically calls this text, quote, quite possibly the most important single paragraph ever written. I know that's a judgment call, but if it's even close to the truth, it deserves careful study. Before I do that, and yes, this is sermon time, I recognize. I want to pause just for a moment. I said this is a text that deserves careful study. We need to think about it. And I want to pause for a moment and consider the process of God-oriented thinking before we get into the text. Because I think it's, it's dreadful to stop and examine the things our world 
passionately considers worthy of, of mind time. Oh, how Christians need to reevaluate their own thought space. Because what we think about doesn't just occupy our minds, it actually comes to form our minds. What you think about, what you apply thought to is the most important thing about you. And the church is fast losing the capacity to be dominated by what Paul calls, 1 Corinthians, the mind, the mind of Christ. Here's the simple rule. God made us as creatures of thought. You may love your pet deeply, but unlike your cat or your dog or your budgie, you are not a creature of instinct. And the reason God created you and me as people who think is so we, above all the rest of creation, we can reflect on his greatness, on his love, on his wisdom, his manifest glory in the rest of creation, and above all else, his redemptive work, his great redemptive work in Christ Jesus. The rest of creation responds to God as creatures. Snow glistens, the seasons come and go, squirrels gather nuts, roses bloom. But they don't ponder these things. They just do them. We have the capacity to contemplate God, to treasure God, to esteem God as beautiful, marvelous, worthy of worship. We have the capacity to prize and savor him above all the rest of creation. In short, God made you able to think so that you can think about him. God made you able to think so that you can think about him in a way that stones and plants and worms and aardvarks and hippos and dust mites can't ponder the greatness of God. But there's also a great potential for disaster here. If you, as a disciple of Christ, don't stuff your mind with truly great thoughts, here's what happens. The tiny, tiny images and objects of this world will start to seem big to you and important to you. But they only seem big because as your mind dwells on them, your mind gets smaller and smaller and smaller. And so these things filling them seem more and more important, even though they're trite and temporary and trivial. So the things of this world, we have to be warned about them in Scripture. Don't, don't set your heart there. The things of this world seem big only into, in proportion to the shrinking mind that they form. That's the deepest danger of carelessly pouring out your attention. You were created with the capacity to think. The danger of pouring out your thoughts on things that don't matter. 
A mind dieted on the trivial will soon start to see it as the stuff that matters. That's what happens. And blindness forms such that truly vital ideas lose their luster. They're boring. There's people that get bored every time they're in church. And there's a reason for it, aside the fact that the preacher might not be all that great. There's another reason. If you fill your mind with small things all week long, they seem attractive. And truly important things lose their value. You can't avoid that. So just because I devote my mind to what is trivial doesn't mean it isn't deadly in the effect it can have. So this, a, a big part of the value of church, going to church regularly and frequently, a big part of the value of church lies right here. A good church, a good church, should hold up what's important in front of people as often as possible so they really can't forget about it. The sermons in a church worth its salt should be infinitely more than culturally relevant. They should be culturally confronting. Good sermons, by the way, like good worship songs, should always stretch the mind and expose what is trite before they call us just to think about what's important. One more thing. Thinking about something isn't quite the same as knowing about it. In fact, sometimes knowing something really well can prevent you from actually thinking about it. Thinking about something. Take God as an example, but it applies to anything. Thinking about something gives flavor to the rest of your life. You don't just assume it. You don't just know it. You concentrate on it. Thinking about something causes it to occupy the rest of your life. That's because when you think about something, you no longer just assume it. You don't take it for granted. It, it becomes a force. It drives the rest of your life. So all of that is preamble. When I think, when I call us to think about this great text, I want to examine it by talking to this text. I want to ask three questions and see if this text can answer them. They are three of the most important questions any human being can ever ask, ever. One, what is our situation standing before a holy God on our own? Fortunately, we don't have to roam really far before we find some troubling words in our text. Romans 3, 19 and 20. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped, the whole world may be held accountable, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his, that's God's sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. These aren't encouraging words. I think we're agreed. If you had a pen or a pencil, you'd want to underline phrases like, every mouth stopped, 
the whole world held accountable, no human being being justified in God's sight. I take that to mean I can't plead ignorance. That's what it means when you're held accountable. I can't hope to escape. How many get away if the whole world is in this condition? And I can't find a good excuse. I'd like to say something in self-defense, but, quotes, every mouth will be stopped. Bad news, these. The problem goes deeper still, though. If God were merely, if God were merely disappointed in Don Horbin, I might be grieved by it, but I wouldn't be endangered by it. Following in the chain of logic established in the Passover account in Exodus 12, we took four weeks on that. The Day of Atonement in Leviticus 16. The suffering substitutionary servant in Isaiah 53. Paul, yet again, going down the same road, he follows the consistent path of the rest of the Bible by talking about God's wrath against my sin. For the 118, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Well, there's a problem. But because of your hardened and penitent hearts, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey your righteousness, there will be wrath and fury. I mean, we could pile up a whole bunch of verses, but I think you get the point. The danger of sin isn't primarily something that lies within the sin itself, like reaping what you sow. That's true enough, but that's not the problem being discussed here. The Bible does say the way of the transgressor is hard, but that isn't its primary danger. And unfortunately, this primary truth has to just be taught all over again in the church. There's this very common view of sin held by a lot of evangelicals right now that is kind of true, but not quite true. It falls short of engaging the full message of the scriptural text. You don't need to remember this. It's called the imminentist view of God's wrath, imminence. The idea being that God's wrath against sin isn't his person expressing wrath. That is, sin doesn't draw anger out of God's person as such. God's just established this created order where sin brings its own penalty. So God's wrath isn't a personal response on the part of God against sin. It's just that the world is divinely organized to make transgressions kind of self-destructive. And they are, but that's not what the text is talking about. The interpretation, it's getting old now a little bit. It's been around for centuries, that view of God's wrath. But it came to modern expression, oh, go back to, Remember the days when the shack was changing everybody's life and now nobody even thinks about it anymore? Where this, this 
uh, kind of an Aunt Jemima kind of character who's supposed to be God, says, page 118, I don't need to punish people for sin. Sin is its own punishment. That's the dominant uh, emergent progressive view of sin. It's becoming common in all sorts of, it's the, now the new in-the-box view of almost all progressives from Greg Boyd, Roxy Cavey, Brian McLaren, Brian Zahn, Jen Hatmaker, Rachel Held Evans, Sarah Bisi, Peter Enns, and a host of others. I have no personal fight with any of these people. But some doctrines are closer to the heart of New Testament Christianity than others. And why I need a savior is as basic as it gets. We're not quibbling about the timing of the rapture here. And something else. The New Testament, the New Testament almost seems to anticipate this lighter interpretation of God's wrath. Because look, look at the way Paul starts to deal with this. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first, also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. The wrath of God, okay, there's where he talks about it. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. In the first primary explanation of the reason for the gospel, the apostle not only gives passing mention to sin, but he heightens, he heightens his definition of it by warning us of God's wrath. And just so we don't box it up with a natural cause and effect of things in this world, he specifically says God's wrath comes from God's own place, God's own throne, from heaven. It's from heaven. The wrath of God is revealed, 18, from heaven. That's Paul's way of reminding me this is not natural wrath. It isn't wrath from the earthly side of things. This is God's own wrath in a very personal, directed way. So, Answer to question number one, what is our situation on our own? Paul says we're accountable because of the law. The whole world is guilty because of sin. We are without excuse and nothing to say. And far worse than any of those things, we are all under God's wrath. That's question number one. Where do we stand? Question number two. This is a good question. If that's our situation, how can we be rescued? But now, remember those two words. The righteousness of God has been manifested, and here's the good news for us, apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God and are justified Aren't these great words? By his grace as a gift. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, 
whom God put forward as, we're going to look at this word, a propitiation by his blood. There is a fountain filled with, we sang it, blood. It's not, well, I won't get off on that. To be received by faith. Of course, the important transition words are the first two words, but now. So, so there's a corner that's being turned here. A great, a great change is blowing in the wind. Something has happened since the dark announcement of verse 20. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. This is a huge transition. No human being justified, 20, justified by his grace as a gift, 24. Now, those two opposite conditions, obviously, they imply just an incredible change. A seismic shift has taken place in our standing before God. And we're told immediately, as if to remove even the thought from our minds, that we didn't affect this change. But now, the righteousness of God. The whole paragraph, remember the one Leon Morris called the most important paragraph ever written, is assembled with words that remove human accomplishment. We fall short of the glory of God, 23. You can look at it. We're justified by his grace as a gift, 24. The redemption we receive, God put forward, 25. To be received by faith, 25. But, but what exactly, what exactly did Jesus do for us? Well, he just loved us, Pastor Don. Well, he, he did, but that's not anywhere near a big enough explanation. Here the answer is a bit surprising, though it shouldn't be in light of the Old Testament text we've been studying. Paul uses a very specific word right in the middle of this paragraph that is rich and full of biblical meaning. It's right in the middle of 25. Look at verse 25. Whom God, speaking of Jesus, put forward as a propitiation by his blood. That, that's the old... English word. Nobody uses it anymore. Carefully crafted by William Tyndale in his English translation of the Bible that carries the prophetic context of the Old Testament. Propitiation. And, and it's a word that's designed to push our thoughts backward to truth already revealed and studied. The NIV, the NIV comes pretty close with its more contemporary uh, explanation, sacrifice of atonement is what the NIV puts. And immediately, as soon as we hear those words, sacrifice of atonement, we're meant to place ourselves in the context of Exodus 12, Leviticus 16, Isaiah 53, passages we've been studying. Propitiation isn't a bad word. It's just that it doesn't come up in daily dialogue. In fact, that might be a positive thing. It, it, it might preserve the content of that word from the, you know, the mournful decay 
common usage inflicts on the meaning of words. Once, once the books and the websites and the blogs and the social media make words common, they usually don't carry the same meaning that they did before. Propitiation means the satisfying or the carrying away of wrath. Expiation means the removal of my sin. Expiation, the removal of my sin. Propitiation isn't the removal of my sin. It's the removal of God's wrath. Remember we sang it. The sin of man and wrath of God. I have two problems, not just one. Expiation deals with the sin of man. Propitiation deals with the wrath of God. That's what, that's what Paul is writing about here, the removal of God's wrath. In perhaps the key paragraph, here's something striking. One of the key paragraphs in the whole New Testament on the atonement, Paul never mentions being rescued from sin. Isn't that striking? We are. Of course we are. We know that. But that's not his focus here. He focuses on being rescued from God's holy wrath. And he got that meaning from this trail of Old Testament texts that we've been studying. He got the idea from God himself. And understanding the text this way, it helps explain those difficult words in the last part of 25. Because for a lot of people, these words make no sense. Speaking of Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith, then this sentence. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. Passed over former sins. Are you kidding me? Paul, have you read the Old Testament? Passed over former sins? Have you heard about the flood, Paul? Sodom and Gomorrah? What about Lot's wife? Did you study anything about the plagues in Egypt? What in the world? How can you say God passed over former sins? But when you understand what Paul is saying about the death of Christ and the removal of God's wrath, you realize Paul doesn't mean God didn't express any judgment on sins when they were committed. He means that God did nothing in that era. God did nothing to remove his wrath in a permanent fashion before Christ came and died on the cross. Those sins, while judged, punished, they weren't, they weren't dealt with in the sense of being settled. That's what Jesus came to accomplish. So, so please hear and, and register this enormous truth. Through our faith, that's what the text says, our faith in Christ Jesus, God's wrath against our sins is terminated. It's spent. When Jesus died on the cross, his resurrection is proof of that. So question number two is, how can we be rescued? And I'd like to wrap up this point by saying the obvious. 
The way the way someone offers rescue reveals a great deal about the danger he thinks I'm in. Imagine a man trapped in the basement underneath the rubble of a collapsed building. He can barely move. He's trapped and a deadly gas is leaking into that space. With only a tiny passageway to the surface, frantic rescuers gather together the organized machinery to try and remove the rubble. If they, if they pass a map down on a rope, it shows they, they think the guy's problem is he just needs directions to get out. Right? If they pass a gas mask down, they recognize what his real danger is. They recognize what his real danger is. When Paul says, Father God, in his wisdom, sent his only son to be a propitiation for Don Horbin's sin, he's telling Don Horbin that in God's eyes, Don Horbin's problems aren't bad habits, low self-esteem, bad self-image, loneliness, lack of joy, but God's wrath against my sin. That's what it means. Question number three, we'll wrap up. Why did the triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, why did the triune God perform this great work for me? 25b and 26. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just, that's God. He has a problem too that has to be solved here. He has to be just. And the justifier, that relates to me, of the one who has faith in Jesus. We've already looked at verse 25. There was something incomplete in the way God dealt with sins before the atoning work of God the Son on the cross. God wasn't finished with those sins. True, The people were treated as forgiven when they repented. The writer of Hebrews, though, tells us God was just treating those people as forgiven. The sacrifice of blood and bulls and goats, it couldn't accomplish anything truly significant. Hebrews 10.4, for it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Those never did remove sin. Verse 26 tells us why God did this great work. And, surprise, surprise, God is at the center of the explanation, not us. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. God's rescue was designed to show something, the text says, about God himself. Some translations use the word demonstrate something. Paul goes on to tell us what God revealed. What he took great pains to reveal. He wanted to reveal 
to all of us that he is incredibly loving, true enough. But he wanted to reveal that his love was not like the fallen love that we all possess. It's a holy love. He has to be just. He wanted to reveal that he always... He's always two things at the same time, nevertheless. He is the wonderful justifier of the ungodly. And he is always just in the way he punishes sin. God went to the cross. God was in Christ. God went to the cross for us to see and for him to demonstrate that he's both justifier and just, loving to the undeserving and appropriately wrathful against sin. And if you think this is all just theological mumbo-jumbo on a Sunday morning, this should be precious to you beyond telling. Because if in justifying you, all God did was let you off the hook, gave you another chance... You'd appreciate it, but you'd always wonder about your future standing. What about around the corner when I sin again? Who knows what you might do down the road and how God would react if he just let you off the hook. But if, through Christ's atoning work, his wrath-bearing work, God not only lets Don Horban off the hook but dealt with all human sin in a way that is so thorough and so just and so guaranteed that all future grounds of condemnation against Don Horbin for the rest of his life, any chance of condemnation is permanently removed because the wrath of God was spent on Jesus Christ, then I've got something precious. There is now, therefore, no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. God doesn't just let me off the hook. He's just... He will not punish my sins twice. Jesus bore God's wrath on the cross. And that gives me a foundation, not just a wishful hope. Somebody say, that's good news. That's good news. This isn't cold theology. There's theological work to be done. But the end result is, is it gives you a place to stand. You ever heard of Archimedes? He invented the the idea of the fulcrum and the lever. Up until then, people couldn't lift a whole lot of weight. But with a fulcrum and a lever, one person with a lever long enough and a fulcrum could lift a piano. One day someone came to Archimedes and said, how much can you lift? His response is great. He said, Give me a place to stand and I can move the world. This is a place to stand. You're going to feel condemnation a million times between now and the day you die. Do you know what to do with it? And do you have reason for understanding God's wrath isn't revealed against you anymore? It's a place to stand. Thank you, thank you, thank you for giving us a place to stand.
We're so grateful for your love and your justice. I'm not redeemed by sentiment. I'm redeemed by the justifying work of Jesus. Give us assurance, confidence, and hope that will last as long as eternity. No wonder that hymn, Redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die. And everyone said, Amen.